Galilee saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately, somebody say immediately. Immediately. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them and immediately, somebody say immediately. Immediately Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about, this, this is an important part, and Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. Lord, before we even get started, I submit to you as your servant. We ask you now, Lord, to take every breath, every thought, every jot, every tittle, Lord, and take control of it. Let this message, Lord, let the power from you flow from your throne. Let the people receive from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's, a, there's an older couple that had a son, and any of you have, have older kids at home that you just, you know, wondering when they're going to get out? <laughs> when are they going to figure out what it is they want to... Some of you are laughing, so I, I, mean, I assume that some of you have seen this before. You know, when are you going to figure out what you're going to do with your life? This one older couple had a son like that, and so they're trying to figure, well, what, what's it going to take to get him out? So they decide they're going to have a test one day. And, and so the father got a $10 bill, and he, he left it for the son. And then he got a Bible, and he placed it. And then he also got a bottle of whiskey, and he put it out there too. And he told the wife, you know, if he takes the $10 bill, he's going to be a businessman. If he takes the Bible, then he'll be a, a minister. And, well, if he takes the alcohol, he'll probably be an alcoholic. And so they hid in the closet and watched through the keyhole, and they're wondering what their son's going to do. And the son comes home, and he takes a $10 bill, and he, you know, okay, and he puts it in his pocket. And then he picks up the Bible, and, okay, he looks through it, and he holds on to that, and he takes a bottle of whiskey, and he goes off to his room. (laughs) And so the father said, oh, my goodness, it's worse than we thought. And the mother said, what do you mean? The father said, he's going to be a politician. I'm here to talk about purpose today, and Lord willing, we'll do that. And I want to say that purpose is a big subject, and it can be very subjective. And um, if somebody is saying that they want to find their purpose, what is it that they're really talking about? What is it that that comes to mind? And and typically, when discussion is made of purpose, the issue about a career comes up. People want to know what their purpose is, how to find their purpose through their career. And so that's why the title of this message today is, My Purpose Part 2, because I don't want to focus on career issues per se today. Um, If you want, and and, um, this is by no means a a shameless promotion, but if you want to find out more about finding your purpose in your career, there's a book available, and you can go to his website. And I I won't do a shameless promotion, but you can find this at (laughs) www.barryjenkins.org. And you can go to Amazon and pick it up or Barnes & Noble, pick it up. But it's called On the Road to Glory, and it talks more about um, finding your purpose with respect to your career. So we won't, we won't mention BarryJenkins.org uh, here this morning. That was www.BarryJenkins.org. Okay. We read this morning from Matthew chapter 4, and, and in most of this message, um, we're not going to focus on 
what uh, was happening in Matthew chapter 4. We're going to focus on the book of Job. And many of you may be saying, well, what does Job have to do with finding your purpose? And we'll talk about that. And before we do that, I want to say something that, that just came to mind as I was preparing. And it was a thought. It was a, something that occurred about uh, two years ago. I was about almost two years ago now. I was preparing for surgery. And uh, I'm laying on a gurney in the hospital uh, pre-op prep area, you know, the area where they prepare you to go into the operating room. And I'm laying there on a gurney. And, you know, they had me on a liquid-only diet for about a week. And if you've been on one of those, then you know that, you know, something about the liquids in your kidneys, well, you know, to just get to going on you. And, and so I told the doctor, well, you know, doctor, before we go into surgery, you know, I, I need some help here, you know, and I'm already hooked up to the IV and I'm getting ready to go in. And, and so, you know, he hands me this little plastic cup. And I'm looking at him like, you know, and then for the next few minutes, well, I would, you know, don't want to go into detail other than to say, well, it was hard to keep that hospital gown covering and, and you know, y'all figure it out. And the doctor saw me struggling with this. And so he looks at me and he just looks at me and he's sitting there by my side the whole time. And, and he says, you know, in a couple of minutes, we're going in that other room. And any modesty that you think you have is going right out the window. And so what he was referring to was a vain attempt that I had of, of, of defending myself, protecting my modesty in the face of a surgical procedure that was necessary to bring about some healing. And so looking back, it's almost funny. I mean, there I am laying on this gurney ready to go into surgery, and, and here I am, I'm, you know, the cover-up starts. Are you following me? You know, it didn't really matter at that point um, what events led up to the surgery. It really didn't matter. All that matters was that right there, the only thing I should have been doing was allowing myself to be further laid open so that the surgeon can heal. Right? I mean, you know, I suppose I had a choice right then. I could have, you know, gotten more defensive. I could have said, you know, well, that's about enough. And don't think it wasn't in my mind. I was thinking this, you know. I could get up right now, pull this IV out, and just call it quits and forget this procedure because I felt so vulnerable. All I wanted to do was defend myself, and in my mind, I had to come to the realization that what I really needed was to allow myself to become more vulnerable. I mean, that doctor was going to take control of my very consciousness, put me out, and I was going to be totally at his mercy, at his hands. And so I had to make a decision right there. Oftentimes I find that life is just like that, that God is preparing us for something. He's getting ready to operate. And, and just when he begins stripping away the things that keep him from getting to the problem, up come the covers. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Or is that just me? It's not always an obvious effort that we go through to conceal something. It may be just as simple as a reflex. You know, you're feeling vulnerable, so you, you put up your defense. Or, or something happens. You may be in a conversation, and, and right away you feel comf uh, um, vulnerable in that conversation. And so you throw up the defense. You get a, a defensive posture, and instead of, instead of saying, well, well, God is trying to do something here, and he's trying to, trying to move something out of the way, trying to expose some things so that he can start bringing you some healing. The problem is that a self-defensive posture blinds us to what's really happening. And if we get so caught up in the cover-up, well, then we lose our focus. 
And if we get off focus, we get in the way of our own healing. Are you tracking with me this morning? Okay. There's a good example of this in Scripture. And his name is Job. And Job is a man who, by all accounts, he lived upright. As a matter of fact, in Job chapter 1, verse 8, God himself says that Job was a man of greater moral character than anybody else. Now, Job didn't make this up. God said this. Job was a man of greater moral character. Not that Job had already, uh, uh, you know, been perfected. He wasn't. But it's just that he had it going on uh, more than his contemporaries. And so what was it about Job that, that brought him to this place? And, and I think perhaps that God saw in that preoperative condition, God saw something that could only be perfected through a procedure. And perhaps the book of Job is, is merely God's notes on a pre-op operation and post-op procedure that he had to do in order to bring something to a better place, in order to have that person perfected beyond what he was. We can't fully claim to understand what was in God's mind through that. But one thing is clear, and, and here it is. Not every rough patch in life is the result of wrongdoing. Are you tracking with me? Sometimes right doing will lay you prostrate before the master, a position for a procedure that will work through a hardship in order to bring you to your purpose. Amen? You didn't want to say amen on that one. <laughs> the fact is, it wasn't Job's sins that caused him to suffer the hardship here. And here we have a God needing to find somebody he could trust. God needing somebody who through a hardship would become the better. Someone by whom a hardship would make a good example to the rest of the world. It's not always about the sin. And so God offered up Job for Satan's consideration. And in this case, it wasn't a demotion. It was a prerequisite for a promotion. But Job, I'm sure, didn't see it that way. I'm sure Job felt like, you know, hey, um, what's going on here? I, I've, I've done it all right. If everything was, was, was good. I, I did what I had to do, but it's not working out. When it was all said and done, Satan was given complete authority over Job's world and everything but his life. I mean, here's Job minding his own business. He's trusting in God fully. And everything that one spoke of his uprightness, his accomplishments, anything that, that he could lay claim to say, well, here, here, here I am. It's the proof that I've lived an upright life. It was all gone in an instant. The life he knew was a memory. And imagine how it must have felt to Job that even the thought, even the thought of any future purpose was diminishing. Job must have thought, well, this is how it ends. It's in that very place, that very backdrop, that Job's um, life became a, a tragedy. He was pulverized by the onslaught of the devil. In the midst of that very setting, we come and we find Job in a conversation with his friends. And before that conversation is over, God had a few words to say himself. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 5 and 6. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And while you're turning there, you know, it's perhaps easiest, at least to me, to see that there are things that Job's friends... Has, has, how many of you read the book of Job? Okay, most of you. So you're tracking with me this morning. It's easiest to see that, that there were some things that his friends were doing that, that you have a problem with. But 
but finding the problem in Job's conversation is a little tougher, I believe, anyway, at least to me. His, to his friends, I mean, his friends were speaking words without knowledge. I mean, they're more concerned with setting Job straight than they are with Job's recovery. But listen to me, beloved. Setting people straight is not our purpose. Amen? Okay. How many times have we seen somebody go through a trial? You know, how many times? Haven't you ever seen somebody that's going through? I mean, let's be honest. Has, have any of you ever seen somebody go through just because they really messed it up? Right? Nobody? Yeah. We've seen people go through. I mean, look, you know, when you see them go through, you go, I knew that was coming. You know, or you, you see them in the beginning of that thing before they even get in trouble and you go, I know the end of this story already. Right. I mean, that, that's not hard to do. So there are people around us. There are people who are at times truly reaping the fruit of their own efforts when tragedy comes. And then there are people who it's no fault of theirs. I mean, it's nothing they did. And my point in bringing that up is we cannot presume to know all the circumstances in anybody's case. Even if you saw somebody yesterday that was doing something deserving of punishment, you don't know if that person repented before the Lord and got it straight. And that the, the circumstance they find themselves in today is something where God's saying, okay, it's time for me to take you to another level. And it's some things that need to be exposed so that we can get you there. Amen? Praise God. And so... So what do you do when it all hits the fan for somebody? How do you remain God's minister, God's servant when you talk to them? And what do you say to him or her? How does your reaction at that moment, how is it going to affect your own life, your ministry, your labor before the Lord? And, and let, me, let me say this along those lines. No matter how much we think of ourselves, none of us, we're not the catch-all for somebody else's problems. Hello? You know, on the other hand, however... If we allow God to truly minister through us, if we allow him to work through us, then the grace of God can be released by what we do next. And the grace of God will bring healing to that person's life. Did I have you turn to 2 Corinthians 3, 5? Paul gives us some, some clues, some insights to this in 2 Corinthians. He says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. You see, and it's not about us. But our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Now listen to this. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Turn to your neighbor and say, the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. So we can see through this passage of Scripture that our purpose is not... To become legalistic. Somebody say amen. amen. But we're called to the ministry of grace. Jesus said in John 3.17. I'm not going to have you turn there. He said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, if God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. Right? Who are we? Amen. With that in mind, when somebody's hurting, when they're really going through, what's your purpose right there? That's the time to think about what your purpose is. Is your purpose to be like Job's friends? Or is it to be a minister 
of the new covenant. Are you still with me? Do you still love me? Amen. I found that, you know, when somebody's hurting from the natural consequence of their actions, when somebody's, you know, when, can, can I say the word stupid? I guess I already did. <laughs> when somebody's done something that, that's really dumb, they already know what they did. You know, you know touting our, our, you know, righteous indignation over them at that moment is not going to do anything to help them at that point. It's not going to help them bring healing. It's not going to help relieve them. They know. But if we at that moment, if we reach that person with the forgiveness of God, you know, Jesus Christ came, we had the whole Old Testament and we pretty much broke it all. All the rules and everything else. He didn't come to beat us up and condemn us with that. He came to show us something. I'm going to show you a principle that when you forgive, love comes out of that. Jesus Christ came to demonstrate. This is a little gem I, I found in, in the scripture in Luke chapter 7. We see the lawyers getting concerned about the woman who had the flask of alabaster, uh, alabaster flask of oil, and she comes and she anoints Jesus' feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. And then the lawyers, or the Pharisees, are, are talking amongst themselves. That, doesn't he know who that is? Doesn't he know what she does for a living? And Jesus, you know, knowing what they're thinking, knowing what they're saying, he, he says to them, a certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, another owned 50. And they weren't able to pay it back. And so he called them to himself and he forgave them both their debt. He said, which one of them will love him more? And they thought about it, you know, I guess the one that owed the most. He said, right you are. This woman here whose sins are many will love much. He who is forgiven little will love little. I think that we can see here there's a correlation. I mean, I must have read that scripture, I, I'd venture to say, over a hundred times. And then this just leapt off the page in the last week. There's a correlation between forgiveness and love. You know, oftentimes, you know, we think that, you know, the way to get love is to give love. And then when we don't get it, we get upset, we get bitter because, you know, I loved you and I'm not getting love back. And so now it's time for me to show you how unhappy I am because you're not loving me. You know, and then and we get this root of bitterness that sets in. But here we see an example in Scripture. Jesus is saying, well, you know, giving love is not necessarily the way to get love. But forgiving. The more we forgive, the more we make ourselves available to get love. Are you still loving me? Amen. Somebody say the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. That's the purpose for all of us in here. To make alive, to make our world alive. And so we see that Job's friends missed their purpose in this respect. And, and, and um, it's not our purpose to beat each other up with our knowledge. Now let's turn to Job for a moment. Um, how often, how often have any of you ever felt that, you know, I just feel like Job? I mean, have, have any of you, I've done that. I mean, you, you know, you're going through, now I'm not talking about when you did something wrong and you know that you've done something wrong and, and you know, and, and so life is pulverizing. I'm talking about when you crossed every T, you dotted every I and you're going along and then, 
you know, and you get knocked to your knees and you can't seem to get up. I mean, how many of you have had times like that? And you start thinking about Job and you go, my, I, I can relate. I can relate. You know, Job was knowledgeable in things of God, but there was still no correlation between the life he lived and the condition he found himself in. His friends didn't see him sin, but they presumed based on their knowledge of Scripture that, well, this must be what happened. So who hasn't at some time or another felt like Job? I can remember uh, one time uh, a while ago back in... 88, my father passed away, and I was working for Lockheed in Burbank, California. And, and uh, I remember those days, that was, they were so rough. I'd never lost anybody close to me before uh, in my direct family. Um, I was with my wife, and she had recently lost her mother. And, uh, and then it, it, it hit my own family. And I remember getting in my car. I used to drive down Victory Boulevard from Van Nuys to Burbank, where I worked, and I'd start worshiping, and as I began to worship, the tears would start coming down my face, and my heart would get heavy. And I, the more I cried out to the Lord, the more, the more the tears came down, and I was hurting. And this went on for weeks. And, and, I, and in that hurt, I was saying, Lord, it hurts. I really hurt. And I wasn't, I wasn't being disrespectful to the Lord, but I was letting him know, Lord, I'm, I'm hurting. This hurts. I don't understand why, Lord. You know, we've been, we've been doing what you say. We've, our life has been on track, but this tragedy came, and, and we don't understand. You know, Dad was just taken away, and it doesn't seem right, and it hurts. Even with that hurt, it's hard for me to imagine what it must have been like for Job. It's hard for me to imagine how he didn't just have that one hurt. I mean, before the, the, the last person finished giving him the bad report, the next person was there giving him the next bad report. And it went on and on. Job had to be saying, Lord, I'm hurting. Are you tracking with me this morning? You have, to be, you have to not be human to be without some measure of anger when this kind of tragedy comes. You'd have to not be human. And, but there's something going on with Job here that's a little deeper, something that's not as easily, I believe, uh, to see between the ink on the paper and what we're given to Job, uh, in the book of Job. And that's something, I believe, is a sense of entitlement. A sense of Job saying, Lord, I've done it right. And you can hear it. If you, if you look through his conversation, you can hear him saying, I've done it right. But God chose to do this anyway. You know, there's a sense of entitlement that Job has that goes along with, with his hurt. And it's a sense that I think all of us are tempted at some time to walk in a feeling of entitlement. I mean, you know, you know, when you're down, you're like, oh, Lord, you know, pick me up. And then the Lord picks you up and then you start getting a few things going. And then you start skipping and say, hey, look what I did. You know, oh, none of you have done that. It's just me. OK. And <laughs> hey, we're all tempted at times to have some kind of feeling of entitlement to feel good about ourselves because of what we've accomplished. We've all we've all been there. If anybody had that sense of entitlement, it had to be Job. God says, here's a man of greater moral character than anybody else on earth. Job had to feel a sense of, of entitlement. In a final analysis, the truth is that we have no entitlement before God. That's the final analysis. The only entitlement we have is, here it is, 
The only thing that we're entitled to is to be responsible to hear and follow our God. Are you tracking with me? Now, there's our purpose. To hear him and to follow him. And we don't have confidence in ourselves when we do that. Our confidence comes from God. Somebody say amen. Amen. Hearing, following, and then the third thing is trusting in him. You've got to trust that even if you're about to be laid open, even if you're about to be operated on, that God knows the end from the beginning. And that whatever happens, your confidence is in him, not in your ability to defend yourself. Are you with me? More often than not, God, the way he asks us to fight is he shows up, he, he asks us to show up for the battle, and he tells us, get your battle gear together, get dressed, put on the armor of God, show up for the battle, and wait. And we may not have to fight at all. But he wants to know that he's calling the battle plans and not us. We're not defending ourselves. Hello? This is going to make sense in a minute. But speaking for myself, I know that that not defending myself is something that's hard to do. I mean, you know, you get in a conversation and somebody says something that rubs you the wrong way and and it's a put down, it's a slam down. I mean, what do you do? You know, you're ready for a fight. You're ready to say, no, that's not true. That's not what happened. You know, you're, you're crazy. Right? The, the cover-up comes. And all the while, it's God just moving things out of the way because he wants to move us to something a little better. Are you tracking with me? Praise God. I, I want to call this, I'm going I'm to bring up a term that I call the Peter Principle. And no, it's not what you think, I don't think, anyway, unless you've heard heard this before in practical terms i'm not talking about career advancement but i'm trying to highlight a zeal that peter shows when he attempts to defend god peter he was a passionate man i mean he had a great zeal for the lord but that zeal is often when we have a lot of zeal sometimes we express it incorrectly i mean peter jumps the gun so to speak and he you know he cuts the guard's ear off in an attempt to defend jesus is that out of order or what I mean, who does Peter think he is that he's going to save the Savior? It sounds funny, doesn't it? But do we do that in our Christianity? Do we so position ourselves? Do we cut somebody's ear off in an attempt to, to rescue our Savior from whatever idle talk or whatever else is going on? Or do we allow him to be the Savior? Do we let down our defense and allow him to operate? Hello? Somebody say the battle's not yours. When the flood tides come and your enemy surrounds you, the battle is not yours. It's not yours when people speak evil of you. The battle is still not yours. When you can't communicate with your loved one, when, when, when they're on one page and you're on another and you just can't see eye to eye, somebody say the battle is not mine. It's the Lord's. That's, that's the thing. That's the thing that Job wasn't getting. It wasn't his purpose there. The battle was not his. And after all Job's oration, God finally speaks. And what God said to Job right there made Job realize where he'd gone wrong. And God says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? I mean, I could see him right there laying his defense down. I'm almost done here. 
Give me about two minutes. Are we good for two minutes? Okay. That's preacher talk. That's code for ten minutes. No, it's not. I'm just kidding. <laughs> how, many, how many decisions have you made knowing that God was leading you? When you started off, you knew that God was leading you, but the flood tides came and, and things got a little tough. And then you said, well, you know, maybe God isn't in this thing. And maybe I'm not supposed to do this in the first place. And then you change your mind. And then you lost the battle. Right? See, that was Job's lesson. Follow God no matter what's going on. No matter what you see happening, no matter how bad it feels, you stick to what God told you to do. You stay in there and you let him fight the battle for you. If you're dealing with discouragement, there should come a sense right now, right now today. If you're dealing with discouragement, there should come a sense of God saying, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when the morning stars sang together and the sons of glory shouted for joy? Where were you? Have you given the horse strength? Have you closed his neck with thunder? Where were you when God set the limits of the sea? Where were you? We got to get out our pity party sometime. That's New York talk for pity party. (laughs) That accent comes up every once in a while and I can't help it. I catch myself. Praise God. Where were you? You know, all Job's righteousness couldn't buy him any entitlement. Where were you, God says, when I laid the foundation of the earth? You know, we can be the most talented. We can have uh, uh, the most accomplished uh, um, life. But one thing that Job realized in God saying that is that he had a defensive posture and he dropped his defense. And what happened when he dropped his defense? His deliverance came. You know, I often wonder, could Job have gotten his deliverance a lot sooner? I think, I believe he could have. I believe if he would have put down his defense, if he didn't go through it with his friends defending himself, if he didn't try to pull the covers up as much long as he did, I think he would have got his deliverance and got on with his life. But I truly believe, I'm fully persuaded that what took him as long as it did to get his deliverance was the fact that he was trying to defend himself. There's life in accepting your purpose. Hello? I'm I'm making a point with this. Bear with me two more seconds, a few more minutes, another hour. Go with me to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6. There's a principle at work here, and that principle is is that when we so guard ourselves, when we defend our own modesty, uh, uh, when we choose our own way, when we do that, we effectively guard against all intrusion including the infusion of life that flows only from God as we stand before him and surrender. Are you tracking with me? It's a matter of trust. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6 says, In some of your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. Did I read that wrong? When you're feeling good, acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. In which ways? Praise God. Go with me real quick to Isaiah 53, verse 7. How many of you are getting blessed this morning? Praise God. Did my hands up for me. Being born again means that we need to retrain our minds about how we think and how we react. Are we reacting the way that the former person reacted in our former self? Or are we reacting in the image of Christ? To every situation. 
With this in mind, let's go to the scripture. The prophecy about the coming of Jesus. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus knew his purpose. Would you agree? Hmm? And his purpose was not going to be served if he came in there trying to defend himself. Hello? Y'all getting too quiet on me. (laughs) The result of Jesus' surrender was life. Let me say that again. The result of his surrender was life. Life that came to his world. Not just his own resurrection, but life that poured out to his entire world. Hello? He, he taught us how to fight. He said, this is how we're going to fight. Turn with me now real quick, and I'll finish with this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 38 through 39. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, what your capabilities are. Bless you, Lord. We started off by reading from Matthew chapter 4 about a group of guys that were accomplished fishermen. This is what they knew. I mean, there's no indication they knew anything about ministry. But Jesus said, follow me, and I'm going to give you purpose. That's in a sense what he's saying. He said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of of men. What he's really saying is, follow me. First, somebody say first, and then I'll give you purpose. It doesn't matter what you think you can do. It only matters what God knows you can do. Amen? Follow me and I'll give you purpose. I can hear the Lord saying that this morning. Follow me and I'll give you purpose. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 38, He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He that loses his life for my sake will find it. You can have purpose on your own. Why don't you stand with me for a minute? You can find your own way in life. We just read. These are not my words. These are the Lord's words. You can find your own way in life. If you do that, you're going to lose your way. You can pave your own way. I mean, we tend to do this. Many of us tend to do this. We, we just get set on a course and we plow right through. He says, you know what? If you put that aside and if you put me first, then you're going to find your way. You're going to find your purpose. Finding your purpose. Step one in finding your purpose is lose yourself in him. Praise the Lord. Why don't you close your eyes and just look inside for a moment. I'm going to ask. Is there anybody here? Don't look around your neighbors. But is there anybody here that would honestly say, you know, I'm feeling like I've lost my sense of direction. My purpose is fuzzy. I see hands already going up. I want to pray with you this morning. I'm not going to ask you to come out your seats because you all know who you are. But if that's you this morning and this message ministered to your spirit and you see, Lord, I want to get re-centered on my purpose in life, then your hand goes up and we're going to pray with you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And those of you, how about we do it like this? Those of you who are near somebody with your hand up, why don't you just reach out and touch them on the shoulder and let's pray. Begin to pray with that person right now. You, you lead the prayer. You pray for that person that's next to you right now that needs to be recentered on their purpose. And, Lord, I pray for the entire group as they begin to pray for one another. Lord, we pray for an outpouring of your spirit. 
We pray for an outpouring of your spirit, Lord. Give us a sense of purpose, Lord. Bring us near to you. Let us come near to you, Lord Jesus. Let us come near so that we can find ourselves. Lord, let us strip away the impediment, the things that are keeping you from operating on us, Lord. The things that are keeping you from bringing us closer to our purpose. We surrender them to you now. I ask you to touch each person's heart in Jesus' name. Touch them now, Lord. Touch them now, Lord. Touch them now, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Bless you, Lord. Hallelujah. Blessed is the Lamb, blessed is the Lamb, Amen. Let's sing that one more time. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Holy, Holy, are you Lord God Almighty? Blessed is the Blessed is the Lamb. Amen. Lord, we thank you that our purpose is in you, Lord. It's in you. In the simplicity of knowing you, Lord, comes eternal life in the now. Lord, help us to return to the roots of knowing you, drawing strength from you. Pray, Lord, for those that are in seasons of being slandered. I pray, Lord, that while we can do everything in our power to defend ourselves, our words sometimes can just be taken by those out to hurt us and twisted and made it made the case to be even worse than it is. So, Lord, in times like that, I pray, Lord, we would look to you and allow you to be our defense. That there is the time really to exercise the right to remain silent and allow you to be God. Hallelujah. Lord, I pray for those of us that are in seasons of our own sowing, reaping consequences. I pray, Lord, that you would heal us from those that have pounced upon us to hurt us, to put us down, to stomp on us. Lord, we run to you for your healing and for your help in Jesus' name.
Lord, our purpose is in you. It all flows from you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All I've ever wanted to do was fulfill a purpose in being a pastor of a, of a church somewhere, and no doors opened. And so I went and made a door and invited people to come. And after a couple of years, it, we shut it down, and it was all over. My purpose at that point was to minister to God, to my wife and kids, and out of that flowed more purpose. So in your season of humility, embrace the cross. Run to Jesus with all your heart. Focus upon him, and out of him comes all that we need for life and godliness. Amen. Thank you so much, Pastor Barry. Can we show our appreciation? Hallelujah. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for coming to the house of the Lord. God bless you for your faithfulness and giving. If you notice, we have offering boxes back at the door now. We save time in the service but not passing the plate. And you all are remaining faithful. Hallelujah. If you look outside the back, we've got construction going on back there. Putting in street lights. We're going to be paving the back driveway, the back parking lot. Thank you, Lord, for his provision and for your faithfulness. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And may he be gracious to you and give you his all-encompassing, fully providing peace, victory in every circumstance. And may the restoring power of God that was displayed in Job's life be revealed in you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Isn't he great? He lights up my face, causing worlds to shake. At the sound of his name, I stood in awe.